Hey everyone, Tommy here. We have launched our Weapon of Choice fundraiser, and listeners have begun to step up with their dollars by becoming sustaining members of the program. And we can't thank you enough. The money people have pledged will go into making this show that much stronger. I also encourage other people who have not yet signed up to become members of Weapon of Choice podcast. So log on right now at www.patreon.com forward slash Weapon of Choice podcast. We are so grateful to the people who have already pledged their support with their dollars. You have no idea how much this means to us. And our pledge to you is to stay true to our mission. We can't grow without your support. Our goal is to reach 1,000 Weapon of Choice community members, making this show nothing less than a people-powered podcast. This show will go on to exist because of listener support. If you can't donate today, please spread the word, post reviews on iTunes, and share the Facebook posts. I'll shut up now. Let's get on with the episode. Welcome to Weapon of Choice, a podcast where creatives across mediums give us insight into the weaponry of their art. Each episode, you'll be hearing an interview with an artist who uses their art as a weapon of choice for social change and disruption, visibility and justice, cultural critique and resistance, among other things that ignite social consciousness and community action. These artists will tell us about their journeys toward the battles they are fighting, how they design, sharpen, and develop their artistic weaponry to strike a blow against injustice in the world. I'm Tommy Franklin. And I'm Andrew Benda. Welcome back, everyone. We uh, hope you're enjoying your week so far. And again, Weapon of Choice, you can reach us on social media, Instagram, at Weapon of Choice Podcast, Facebook, at Weapon of Choice Podcast, Twitter, they make us shorten it up. At Weapon Choice Pod, but get at us. We want love to keep interacting with you. Um, I love seeing your posts and your messages, even your likes. Hell, I love seeing that too. Um, and I'm been having a hard time seeing all that lately. I I did this. I did this iPhone update. I was warned. I was warned profusely not to do the update. And then my stubborn, hard-head ass brother. We just ended up arguing because that's what we do. He's like, no, nah, man, who cares? Everybody's got to complain about something. Everybody's not happy with something or another. Just do the update. So I did the update. And since then, I'm not going to say my life has been hell because we're talking about a fucking phone. <laughs> but I'm telling you, like, there's about 8,000 reasons I can name why I hate this update. And I'm just, oh, I've been reading more books lately, though. So I guess <laughs> if you're a podcast listener, you've noticed, too, because the revamp for the podcast app has just been terrible uh, everything about this i'm hearing they're gonna roll out a new update in a few weeks and i am like <clears throat> i'm gonna celebrate and i'm gonna get birth- <laughs> i'm gonna get a birthday cake I- i'm so i'm so i'm so annoyed by this and you know what <clears throat> there is one there's one cool thing there's that came a silver out of lining. this yeah. hey, it's always a silver lining silver lining and uh some friends of ours, uh, you know, pointed out the fact that the emojis has stepped their game up. Um, All right. There's a mother breastfeeding. There's a uh, hijab emoji and, you know, some cool ones. So we'll take that. Hope that stays in the next update. But everything else got to go. <laughs> but anyway, let's talk about our guests here. Eka Echo is an eco pop star currently residing in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Through her music, she promotes radical self-love and its intersection with love for the environment. Eka proudly identifies as ecosexual, defined as a wildly inclusive and queer form of sensuality and commitment to nature. Her first single, a production with collaborator Demi Bod, Froth Fourth, is out now and will be featured at the end of this episode. Let's get into our guest, Eka Echo. 
My name is Eka Echo, and I am a musical performer, a performance artist, a singer, a budding pop star making earth pop music. So what is your weapon of choice and what battles are you fighting? So this genre of earth pop that I am co-creating with my main collaborator, Demibod, uh, it's a tool for humans to cultivate a deeper, more reciprocal relationship with the planet. And I do consider myself um, in a romantic and committed relationship with Earth. So the Earth is my primary relationship that I really focus on. And the power of the human voice and the power of my voice and the voices singing along to my music, that to me is, that's the weapon against um, complacency, um, denial of climate change, um, and a really detrimental relationship that many people have with Earth right now, which is leading to um, catastrophe, disaster, and um, just a coldness towards one another. What is Earth pop? Well, it's a, it's a genre of music, pop music. Uh, right now, we're, we have some disco beats going on. It's very bass heavy. Uh, but we're drawing from deep listening experiences with the earth. The first uh, single that we have out called Froth Forth, uh, about the Mississippi River. Are you moved by the river? I'm moved by the river. Uh, really just tapping in, going to the river every day, listening to what the river has to offer, um, hearing it bubble, seeing it froth up, and, and then putting that into my body and into and encouraging people around me to put that into their body, move like the river, move by the river, and then be moved by the river. So this process of listening really deeply to what the, what the river has to offer, and then I'm the one echoing that back, uh, singing what I hear out into the air. Um, and I usually, in my process, kind of do that in, in refrains, repetitive refrains. So I hear something, and then I'm moved by it, and then I repeat it over and over and over again. I'm out in nature doing this. And, and that is an impetus for an earth pop song. It's coming from the earth, but then we want it to be within the genre of pop music because this relationship this really healthy relationship with the earth that I think we all need to strive for is something that is communal, collective, shared. And the history of pop music is that it's coming through every different kind of radio. It's coming through the car radio. It's coming over the laundromat radio. It's reaching all these different audiences and everyone is able to sing along. So pop, as in maybe these bubbles popping up on the surface of the river, but also uh, pop as in popular, as in uh, really getting to the masses and having 
and and I'm the one right now echoing the earth, but I'm sure there are many others doing it in their own way. And even though I think there's something special about my voice, there's something special about everyone's voices. So everyone has this ability to listen deeply and then echo back what they hear and incorporate the feelings and sounds and sensations of their experiences with the earth, with nature, even in a super urban setting, uh, into their everyday lives. Um, I, I think a lot about the mainstream, what is the mainstream? And to me, the Mississippi River is the mainstream. It's the mainstream of America. So how can we bring the mainstream, the power of the Mississippi River to the mainstream? And a lot of people on the coasts aren't uh, as aware about the power of this Mississippi River, uh, but it was actually the river that drew me here to move to Minneapolis. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and to touch a little bit more on on that song uh, and water and fluidity in that exhilarating single, the Mississippi Disco Love Jam Froth Fourth, you admit to being moved by the river and sing about being moved by the river. How do you want your fans and even casual listeners to be moved by your songs? I want them to be moved to dance if they are able, in whatever way they are able to be moved to dance, to embody the songs. Uh, I think that if we wake up every morning and if you were to put on Froth Forth and dance to it alone in your room and move your body and just kind of, you know, get your blood flowing, get your energy up, then you might be more moved to action throughout the day. You might be more willing to go out of your way to help someone who isn't uh, part of your usual group of friends and family you might be more willing to move to action uh, on intersectional uh, climate justice. You might be willing to move your body out at a rally. You might be able to uh, be moved differently if once listening to the song and thinking about the way that the river moves you, maybe you'll take a walk by the river or maybe on your walk at your lunch break at work, you'll see a tree and you'll see that the way that the leaves are titillating in the wind might make your fingers just kind of do a little dance. And, and I think that if we wake up and we start to dance, if we embody the movement of, of the trees and the clouds and the water around us, then we're going to be more likely to be motivated, to move to action. Because it's hard work. It's hard work to be ecologically minded and to live your life in an ecological way. And so we have to rise to the occasion, but what better way to do that than dance your way through it? How old were you when you realized that you had a decent singing voice and that you wanted <laughs> to use it? Yeah. <laughs> I've been singing since I was so young. Um, I grew up in Jupiter. Florida. <laughs> Let that pause. <laughs> Linger for a bit. No, I am an earthling from Jupiter, Florida. And uh, when I was there, I grew up doing musical theater at this tiny spot called the Serendipity Theater with Miss Shannon. And so I would sing when I was in the plays there. And I felt a lot of fear growing up, um, you know, 
scared of a, a robber in the closet or something. And so, you know, in order to calm myself down, I would sing to myself. It would be like this tactic of, of healing and calming. And so I found myself singing to myself a lot in my room and then singing on the stage. So I had the kind of private experience of singing and then also the public experience of singing. And um, I would just sing all the time. I had a really harrowing experience when I was um, in my preteens. My mom and I were on a cruise and there was a really bad hurricane and we all had to uh, evacuate the cruise ship. And so we were on these small dinghy boats and I remember just singing my way through that experience. Just, you know, using my little, my young voice to just kind of sing myself through it and holding my mom's hand and just and just singing. And as time went on, I just found that the more I sang, the more that other singers and other people who believed in the power of voice would, would gravitate towards my pull and would sing with me and we would harmonize together. During that hurricane, um, that quote unquote natural disaster, were you and your mother separated for a time or? Yeah, so my mom and I are really, really close. Um, she's my best friend in the whole world. And um, we were separated, the dinghy that we were on capsized. And I, um, I was separated from the group and I ended up on this small island outside of Florida for quite some time. Uh, I did have my little doll with me, Numi, and that was so important. And we were together on that island um, for quite some time. And I mean, it was amazing. That was in, I guess, the early 2000s. And even at that time, there was a lot of plastic that was washing up on the island um, as, as we waited for help. I was there with my plastic baby doll knew me and we spent our time just kind of collecting all the plastics that were coming up on the shore, the combs and the toothbrushes and the cigarette butts and the <clears throat> pieces of polymer, uh, polyester clothing and uh, of course plastic water bottles and plastic bits. Um, and that's kind of how we passed our time as we waited. So I was, with, I was just kind of surrounded by plastics, but I had my best plastic friend with me, my <laughs> baby doll knew me. And so, yeah, after that time, my mom and I really stuck close together forever. And, and uh, my mom is my materials manager. So anytime we're like gonna build a set for one of the pop performances or anytime I'm kind of figuring out a new costume, it's always my mom that I look to. She's a creative genius. And, and seeing all that plastic um, washing up when you, when you were stranded up on that island, what do you remember thinking then about seeing all of that floating in from uh, the ocean? Yeah. I mean, it was this thing where I was so far away from home, and yet I was seeing all of these like really domestic items, these items that I was so used to seeing in my home. I think like the toothbrush really got me because it was this thing where it was like, I wanted to be at home in my bedroom and my bathroom so badly, like the, the, the comforts of home, I, I longed for them. 
and then to see a toothbrush kind of just come on up onto the shore. And then I just thought about like, well, of course that's not my toothbrush. It's like, well, whose is it? Well, there are millions of people out there who are using these plastic toothbrushes. And then, hmm, how long until you get a new one? Or every time you go to the dentist, they give you another one. And these plastic bristles and the plastic handles. And then thinking about how long will this persist? I mean, toothbrush isn't the worst because at least it's not a one-time use disposable plastic. But I recently read the book, uh, plastics are top our toxic love story by Susan Frankel and she threw out the, a statistic that 50% of all plastics manufactured are one-time use disposable plastics right now and so yeah at least our toothbrushes we use for a little bit longer than that we might use them for a year or many many years or maybe you can reuse them after you're done <laughs> with <clears throat> with them on your teeth you can use them to scrub the grout or like <laughs> um but thinking about you know water bottles um cigarette butts uh plastic packaging these like one-time use plastics in comparison to my baby doll Numi, who it's like Numi's a hunk of plastic i've had for over 25 years now. What if we were to treat every piece of plastic that preciously? So it's always about just for reframing your relationship to the item or like how I'm talking about this relationship to the earth that, I mean, yes, we should not be uh, producing plastics at the rate that we are and the toxicity of them in our ocean and our water sources and seeping into our soil is really worrisome to me but on our end as the consumers or users how can we value place a greater value on our plastics so that they aren't just these things that we see as totally disposable and do we really trust recycling i mean some recycling processes are really closed loop and we if you you know do your research uh you can trust you can perhaps trust Minneapolis recycling to recycle certain things, but there's also a lot that we just throw in that bin that doesn't end up getting recycled. And yeah, that, that book, Plastics, Our to Toxic Love Story, really huh, opened my eyes to so much. And so I'm, I'm just trying to really, as opposed to completely avoiding plastics, place a new type of value on them. And they were so valuable to me when I was stranded on that island because they were a really durable material. I was like, dang, humans are so smart. We're too smart. We created this, this material that will persist forever. We'll use it once and then, you know, it'll, it'll be there forever. Or at least for, you know, decades to centuries to millennia. Hmm. So that relationship to plastics... Um kind of like gave you a, started to develop your worldview in a way, in a sense. And, you know, how did obstacles you face at such a young age also attune you more to the wonders, to the other wonders and elements of this earth? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, growing up near the ocean, um, capsizing on that dinghy and ending up on that, that seemingly remote island, uh, being really in touch with the sand and the sun in Florida and, and, you know, being by the ocean, which just relentlessly ebbs and flows and ebbs and flows. 
it became my first sexual encounter to be alone with the ocean. I mean, it was so amazing. And that was right around the time where I feel like, you know, all the girls in my class are starting to freak out about boys, or many of them were. And I mean, you know, so some of the people at school interest me, mainly if they were like fun to play around with or made good jokes or were really talented in some way that inspired me. But I felt like I was having a crush on the ocean. I was having a crush on the way that the waves would crest onto the shore, the way that my girlfriends at school would talk about that cute boy in class and how she couldn't stop thinking about him. It was like, I couldn't wait to get back to the beach. I just, I couldn't stop thinking about that relentlessness and resiliency of water. And it was confusing because, I mean, it took me up until only a couple years ago to come out as an ecosexual and to really own that queer identity and see how it can be this like, all-encompassing, all-inclusive sexual identity. And um, I, I learned about the phrase from Annie Sprinkles and Beth Stevens. They coined the term ecosexual from what I know, and they wrote this ecosexual manifesto. And when I read it, I was like, oh, this is me. This describes me. This is how I've been feeling all along, but I never really had the the language for it and i mean it's a super inclusive manifesto in the way they talk about it that someone could be ecosexual but they could also be asexual they can they can they can also have an affinity sexually for other humans that it's not fully about the earth but can be inclusive of the earth but for me that's that's my main sexual identity and i do see it as a radical form of queerness and I feel so proud to be ecosexual and so you know the the more that I've owned that the more that I really am working to have a better relationship with the earth around me the thing that makes me you know the most upset is hearing about experiences of sexual assault and sexual harassment and experiencing those things myself as a femme and then comparing that to the way that thinking about Standing Rock the the way that uh, corporations and the the hegemony of patriarchal colonialist power is willing to just you know ravage and pollute and desecrate um, our water supply, these sacred burial sites for native people, and how that's a form of assault for of the land and um, of human rights. And just thinking about how rape culture is so pervasive and at the same time how our destruction of the earth and its precious resources is all pervasive. And if we can think about that through this ecosexual lens, maybe maybe we have a chance at ending rape culture. I mean, I mean, it's a tall order, but it has to end. Like, and the way we're treating the earth, it can't persist. I, 
I mean, it can't persist in a sustainable way, the way that we're creating so much excess and waste. And, and so these things are kind of becoming more and more intertwined in my mind and pulling at my heart more and more. And it's, you know, it can get me down, but then that's why I have to get back to singing and dancing and, um, and listening. And you're, and you know, it's, so, you know, it can be challenging sometimes. And just topically, you're making art that's defining our time. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons you're so fascinating is the ways you carve out that sound and identity in the genre of earth pop. But, um, you know, as you create, is, is, is there an anxiety that comes with that artistic pursuit? Yeah, I think it can be really heavy. Like waking up and being like, okay, Donald Trump is our president. Mike Pence is our vice president. These are men who, through their actions, have shown that they do not respect women or the choices that women have in relation to their bodies. They don't respect the body of the earth. <clears throat> they don't respect uh, differently abled, disabled, black, brown, native folks, queer folks. I mean, like every person, Muslim folks, every person I come to care about, it seems like they're being uh, oppressed by the current government. It's disgusting, deplorable, and pathetic, the leadership that we have right now. I, I wake up and I'll get entangled in that, but then I'll be like, okay, but we have to set we have to overcome that and we have, I have to focus on what I can do and I have to focus on my own agency and I have to focus on, you know, my relationship with the planet. And then that can get heavy. I'm like, wow, we are filling up our landfills. There will be nowhere else for our waste to go. Uh, there is still a giant hole in the ozone. The Earth is getting warmer, and yet we are getting colder towards one another. And this whole thing will weigh on me. And so then that's why I need to find these moments of play, these moments of humor, um, and, and share those with others who, I know we all go through this, just feeling down, feeling so helpless. What can I do individually? And then so many people, they care. They, they know that climate change is happening. They're willing to admit it, but, in so, but they still must be suppressing it because they're not willing to do anything about it. Like, okay, well, I can be a vegetarian. That can be one of the things that can really help with carbon emissions. But some people think that it's like all or nothing. Oh, well, if I can't fully commit to being a vegetarian, then I'd be a total hypocrite and I can't do that. And, and I want to just like, I want to like uplift those people and say like, hey, even if you, you know, if you were to be a vegetarian 80% of the time, like that would still do so much. Uh, I think we can all be so hard on ourselves. We'll see maybe that there's something that we can do for the cause that we care most about. And we can do that one thing, but then uh, if, if we want to start caring about another cause and if we want to start making another lifestyle cho choice, then it might seem like too much. It might feel like, oh, well, if I start to 
publicly announce that I'm going to do this thing, then people are going to make me live up to that and they're going to call me a liar if I don't do that. And, and I think we just need to find ways to give ourselves a pat on the back for the things that we are doing well, find pleasure in, in our everyday lives, find playfulness and humor within these really dark things that are happening and be gentle with ourselves, but then continue to challenge our ourselves. And like finding that balance is so hard, but that's what I'm really striving to find. The balance of being gentle on myself, being tolerant and gentle and accepting of others, finding that line between being totally accepting and then saying, this is unacceptable. And that can be so hard. In trying to do that, I, you know, I'm, I'm employing these tactics of play in, in the process of creating my artwork. So for me, improvisation is a huge key ingredient in how I'm able to go about that and how I'm able to kind of continue to vibe on the positive spectrum. Uh, if I can engage with vocal improv improvisation, humor, word play on a daily basis. And a lot of that comes from just finding words and saying them over and over again till they turn into another word, as I've been mentioning this, this way I repeat. And so for an, for an example, maybe I'm saying fresh air, fresh air, fresh Fresh air, oh for sure, oh for sure, for sure, fresh air for sure. And then I can find a little ditty and a little a little humor in that. And then every time I hear someone talking about fresh air, I go, hmm, for sure. Or every time I hear someone saying, oh yeah, for sure, I'll go, hmm, fresh air. And <laughs> it can become this little joke with myself and then I can share that with others. And so that's a way I can just kind of like play with words, play with language. Language can be malleable and it can be mine to kind of play with in my own mouth like a, like a piece of gum. I can just kind of like contort it in any different direction. And that can be a tool of liberation. It can be a way to just feel free in my own body or my own voice on a daily basis and kind of keep playing and keep finding those humorous moments. But then it can open up to something darker, to something that really matters, to something that really resonates with other people. Yeah, to me, words just get me. Like, I'll just have a word like knocking around in my brain all day. Recently, I've been thinking about uh, excess and like that's something that bogs me down and then access and that's something that I'm like yeah always questioning in relation to my own privilege and then thinking about story storytelling that's you know the most important thing storytelling being able to tell these stories the the method through which we communicate being storytelling for forever and so I'm thinking access story, excess, sorry, and then thinking accessory, I'm like accessories. I love accessorizing. I love to wear my jewelry and my uh, sequins. And then I'm thinking accessory, accessory to a murder. What are we murdering? We're planet murder. And ah, the way that the way that language can be so fluid, it can be like waves, it can just kind of follow you through all of these different thoughts. And you can all in one uh, 
in one kind of fluid line of language tackle things that seem the most trite, things that seem the most heavy, seem things that seem uh, the most historically imbued, um, and and have fun along the way. And to me, that's that's a way I'm. I'm attempting to hold all these contradictions and I feel like that's like the like act of being a human is just like this juggling act of contradictions how do we hold the contradictions how do we not let them get us down in that exploration of exp- of expression and sort of um unfiltered un- uncensored um self-love where where does that intersect with uh ecology and and the earth you know how does self-love and ecological love intersect <sighs> you are the only you you are the only you this is a little uh, ditty i'll sing to myself i am the only me i am the only me hey <laughs> and so i'll sing this to myself and i'll sing it to others you are the only you you are the only you uh-huh and i am the only me I am the only me. Uh-huh. Clap, clap. <laughs> so that's like that's like my little refrain for my daily self-love. I think that's important. When I'm loving myself, when I'm being, when I'm being alive, I'm singing and I'm breathing. And every morning I wake up and I take a breath and immediately I'm collaborating with the air. I'm taking a breath, I'm collaborating with the air. I'm walking outside and I'm breathing and the trees are breathing with me and I have gratitude towards the trees because they're the ones helping produce that oxygen for me to breathe. And in feeling that love for myself, that gratitude for being alive, I have to give gratitude to the trees and I have to give gratitude to the oxygen and I have to every day think outside of myself. I, I don't think it's helpful to live on an island or believe that we can survive alone in the woods. We have to figure out how to communicate in these tight spaces. Like We have to figure out on a daily basis how you can find enough love and patience with yourself that you can expand that outwards and treat others with that same kindness and respect. Find out even in moments of frustration and impatience, how can I have a conversation with this person who is unlike me? Or how can I have a conversation that is productive with this individual who is in close proximity with me who mm, there is some friction or tension? And then how can, I mean, a, ecology includes all of all, all humans, all cells, all trash that the humans have created, all leaves. How can we like expand our mindsets and see that practicing massaging your friend who has been working a hard laborious job all day and needs that not needed out could uh, could be augmented and in, in, uh, by the practice of going out and rubbing, rubbing a tree essentially out in nature or 
and could connect to going into the ceramics studio and throwing that hunk of clay and creating it into something. That the way that we interact is all connected. These, um, I think a lot about keeping in touch. And I think uh, keeping in touch, that phrase, uh, we want to keep in touch with our friends through Skype who are all the way across the world. Uh, one of my best friends in the world lives in London as a drag performer, Shay Shay. And we have to keep our relationship going via FaceTime and uh, Facebook video. And so we're keeping in touch. And then I'm keeping in touch with the river by going down and listening to the river and stroking the river with my hands. And then I'm keeping in touch with myself and saying, what can I handle for today? How many yeses can I give? But then also, when do I need to say no in order to stay, to stay mentally healthy and to not be overwhelmed? Um, how much can I intake before I know that I, I need to just pause and then I need to give a creative output? Um, and so that being in touch with myself and loving myself and respecting myself enough to know my limits and enough to know what I need, but then at the same time, figuring out what the people around me need through uh, respectful communication and great listening practices, and then reaching out further from that and uh, finding ways to care about the trees that you pass every day but then also finding ways to care about the terrible terrorist attacks occurring over on the other side of the world, like the really tragic recent one in Somalia. And I wanna send love to um, our neighbors here in Minneapolis who I'm sure are really feeling the effects of that. How do we find the capacity to care for all of these things at once? So, so much of your, your messaging and your delivery has been through um, the internet is sort of your conduit, your vessel. Um, how would you describe your relationship to the internet? Yeah, I mean, I sleep with my phone next to my head every night. <laughs> and, and, and it's like, how many of us do that? And, and like, how often do we kiss or caress our phones? We should be more in touch with this little window <laughs> to... <laughs> Every once in a while, gotta give it a little, a little love. <laughs> I mean, I would like for the internet to be a more intimate place. And in some ways it, it is, and in some ways it's so disconnected and scary. I'm thankful to the internet, but I feel like just like my relationship with the earth, it's complicated. And so it's like, okay, keep in touch, keep in touch screen. We got these touch screens and we're like constantly using our little fingertips to like, to <laughs> skate around on these touch screens. And here we have this wealth of knowledge. I mean, it's just everything upon there. And so, you know, so I feel excited about that. I feel like, okay, so here's my opportunity to connect with all of these people out there that I, wouldn't usually get the opportunity to connect with. And so it feels like this really beautiful place for me to 
you know, put my songs out there, but then also call for a response. Uh, I just finished the first episode, haven't put it online yet, but uh, of this YouTube series I'm about to start called Global Warmups. And so it'll be like vocal warmups for singers and non-singers. Uh, people can sing along to these refrains, these kind of classic echo echo refrains that always have to do with the earth. And um, it could be a great way to start your morning. And maybe you're feeling kind of down about climate change and just feeling the heaviness of it. And then this can be a way to kind of warm up your body, warm up your mind, warm up your spirit. And so even though it's me singing, I'm, I'm hoping that I will be inviting people to sing along, that there will be this participation uh, of someone across the world at their computer screen or at their, um, at their desk or uh, in their bedroom, singing along, singing, we are all breathing the air. <sighs> and I'm breathing over here in Minneapolis, and they're breathing over there in somewhere in Asia, and we're breathing together. And how beautiful is that? And that's possible because of YouTube, and that's possible because of the internet. I mean, so, so much of what I learned has been in thanks to the internet. But then there's also, you know, this question pops up of like, well, it's, it's just like this magical thing. It's just like, oh, all these files I have of, you know, photo shoots and uh, demos of songs, and they're all just living on the cloud. And it's like, oh, the cloud. It's just like this like floaty thing up in the sky. And it's like, well, the cloud is not this immaterial thing. It is material. And, you know, what, what, companies are being more ethical about the way that they're going about using resources for the internet. And so I was in the process of thinking about this and I went online to kind of try to do some research and I know that there's a guy who uh, wrote a book, can't remember the name of it right now, and he kind of did that like journey um, to different data centers. Um, he's a journalist, and so he was kind of coming from that journalistic point of view. And then I found this this Vimeo webisode series called Hard Drive, which was by two local femme artists, Worldwide Reb and Homepage. And they did a nine episode mini series this summer where they went around the country on a hard drive. Uh, looking for the internet, searching for the World Wide Web. And they went to a bunch of different places. And this kind of helped me to understand it from a different perspective. They went to these data centers, like big ones, like Google and Apple. And they were, of course, turned away, uh, really high security. But the, at the Apple one, they learned that it was totally solar powered, but it's in the middle of Arizona when they were there, it was like 105 degrees. And as climate change uh, warms places like the desert, it's gonna get even more and more. I mean, I mean, my mom lives in LA and it was 105 in Los Angeles yesterday, 99 degrees at 5 p.m. And so, okay, yeah, so there's all these solar panels on this Apple data center, the iCloud storage facility, like boom, there it is, that's the cloud. And it's using the sun, how great. But then within the first week of them launching this new place, 
some of the solar panels caught on fire. There was this huge fire on the roof of the facility. And then the fire department comes and they're using tons and tons of water in order to put this out. And, and yes, it's totally solar powered, but it's all new materials to create this building. So, you know, there's always going to be all these resources involved in these conundrums. And I mean, I feel pretty good about the fact that, you know, Apple is really striving towards this renewable way of being and Google has lots of ways that they're, you know, talking about being green, but there's still these huge megastructures. And, and on this trip, um, they went to the Earthships in Taos, New Mexico, which are these like totally sustainable houses. They're um, solar powered and wind powered and um, they inside they have these like edible hydroponic gardens so like your bath water drains into where your grapes are growing and like you could totally just survive out there in the desert and I mean they seem like this like really amazing beautiful place and like totally self-sufficient how exciting but then um, they they asked them where does your internet come from and and the person they asked actually did know they were able to kind of point and be like that tower right there. And they had a better sense of like, and then those cables connect to this because they're like, like built their entire houses themselves. They have that like more acute sense of like the interworkings and caring about where this power and resources come from. But still, that was the only thing that they were like, yeah, we can completely sustain ourselves. Everything is self-sustaining except for the internet, you know, like that was the rub. And so even there, it kind of just showed that like, I mean, and you know, what's the answer? Like, are we just supposed to unplug? Like, I don't know. I, I love being able to share my art and my music and my, my videos with the world. And I love to be able to communicate with people who aren't physically right next to me. But at the same time, it's like, can we keep in touch without touching? And to me, like touch, like physical touch, um, and intimacy is so important in my relationship with the earth and and the sensuality and sexuality of just kind of being outside and being alive. And so like how much of the internet and like that experience of seeing something through a screen, like how much how much of that kind of like dulls that tactile experience of life? You know, the earth's health through climate change has become deeply politicized. How does your message aim to cut through that noise and polarization? I, I want the music and the messages to, to stay political, but still through this humor and play. And humor and play can be political. To even just find time for humor and play in the current climate is a political act. The biggest dream I have for my music is that I'm able to really reach the farest, widest possible audience and to be a mediator of sorts. And I really believe in the power of my music, of this earth pop genre, of the power of my voice and the power of collective voices and the power of deeply listening to the earth and echoing it back to the people and asking them, sing along, dance with me. Like, let's get excited. Let's deepen our capacity to care and love. And I keep mentioning deep listening and I'd like to just give gratitude and a shout out to Paulina Oliveris. Um, who is the late great um, sound artist and composer 
who coined the term deep listening and dedicated her life to a deep listening practice. And just a couple months before she passed away, I was able to do a, a extended workshop with her. And so I'm really, really thankful to her to opening up a new way of considering listening. And um, a lot of her work is really ecologically oriented. How can we harmonize with with the environment. She has this really amazing score from the 70s called Environmental Dialogue, and I practice that score, going out and having this conversation with the earth. And we can do that anywhere. I mean, environment is not a nature in the way I see it, is not this pristine, beautiful, untouched wilderness. I mean, it can be. I mean, that's hard to find, but it is more easy to find in Minnesota than other places. But, I mean, nature can be everywhere. And, in, and we, can ha we can go outside and have this environmental dialogue almost in the middle of a city. Um, and she was a, a contemporary of John Cage, just got less recognition at the time being a woman. And, um, but she is well known and she will continue to be well known and her her scores will persist and i think more than ever we could really use her practice we could all use a dose of deep listening on a daily basis i think finding ways to integrate these healing practices into our everyday life is going to become more and more essential i keep mentioning this like um, this, these repetitive songs that I practice on a daily basis. And recently I had like an epiphany about the word refrain and, you know, thinking about this refrain, singing the same song over and over again. I will inspire till I expire. I will inspire till I expire. I will inspire till I expire. I'll sing that one on a good day. And I'm thinking about like inspiration, like inspiring others creatively. But I'm also thinking about inspiration, like breathing in and out. And then expiration, we're all gonna die and we're all gonna sink back into the earth. <laughs> and so I'm thinking about this refrain that I'm singing and it's this like relentless re repetition, kind of like how the ocean waves just continue to ebb and flow and crash. And then I'm thinking about the thing that we all need to do that I'm trying to kind of deprogram myself from wanting to buy things and consume things all the time. I'm trying to refrain. I'm trying to refrain from buying clothes that aren't ethically made or that are made of a, a polyester material that I know will persist uh, in a landfill forever and not decompose. I'm trying to r refrain, r refrain, 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 refrain. <laughs> and it's, it's this funny, it's like, it's this funny kind of oppositional word where it seems like 
it's like the refrain is like we're doing it over and over and over again, but it's like we need to refrain. So it's like, how do we like keep going, but then stop at the same time? So it seems to me that the word refrain kind of like embodies these inherent contradictions that I really become kind of obsessed with it with and that like challenge me and inspire me to push forward in my art making on a daily basis and in my life practice and merging my art and life practice more and more as time goes on. Hey there, everybody. It's Andrew. And I just wanted to remind you that we need a thousand of you to show us love and support the show. You can make a monthly contribution starting at $1 to help us continue making this show. You can support us now by going to www.patreon.com forward slash weapon of choice podcast. That link to give is also in the show notes. There are some cool perks to becoming a contributing member at any level. And as we grow, we plan to make available more weapon of choice items for folks to represent with. Thank you so much. All right, back to the rest of the episode. So I'm not even going to go down the road of traditional or conservative thinking people, but thinking of leftist or liberal minded facets of society and folks alone. Why do you think it takes people well into adulthood to even begin to come to terms with human made destruction of the planet? It's like we don't want to admit that we're doing it. We want to. A lot of it for me boils down to the constructions of pleasure in society. Thinking about like, like what do people think of as a guilty pleasure? And I feel like it's like, like why is it that so much of the time these ideas of these things that are pleasurable are like tied in with guilt? And then that's also in relation to like sexuality and society and, and the way that pornography and, well, misogynist pornography and just the patriarchy and misogyny and rape culture have really, and so many other things, have made it so that sex becomes this taboo topic within society, becomes something that we aren't able to have these like really helpful conversations with, which leads to so much repression, which leads to a lot of secrecy, which which leads to sexual assault of and harassment of young children and women around the globe and people everywhere. And and it's like our ideas of pleasure must be so twisted that our pleasure seems to be tied in with these things that like we're scared to share with others that become guilty that like that like our pleasure becomes so secret and becomes shameful and like pleasure and shame have become so tied together and I don't feel like I have the wisdom to talk about this in like a fully encompassing way and I would love to like continue this conversation with with different people especially like um like more like like my mom and people like other women from her generation but thinking about pleasure and shame and the way those things are tied up and then thinking about like the pleasure that comes from consumption and like I think that's been so taught to me like I've been taught to dispose I've been taught to like love to shop I've been I've been taught that like at the once I 
do a good job on something that I should go and buy myself something to reward myself. And so in that way, capitalism and consumption and a lot of this is also gendered uh, norms become uh, ways in which people are equating pleasure to consumption and shame. And so because of that, it takes so long to kind of break out of that and like find our own pleasure in our more healthy moments of our lives and our in our finding the pleasure in taking a walk through nature, finding the pleasure in being turned on by nature, finding the pleasure in being able to talk about sex more openly and voice fears and concerns and talk to a partner about what I find pleasurable, what will what will make me happy as opposed to wondering if I'm doing it right or wondering if this is how it's supposed to be. And so, and so because of all that repression, I think it takes a really long time to recognize that these things that we've been taught are like treats to ourselves or these things that kind of like can drive us and make us happy. We're like, oh my God, I have to study for this test or like, you know, like all these pressures that come from when we're younger in school and then knowing that the light at the end of the tunnel will be uh, usually I don't like a, even if it's like a smoothie, like something like amazing, like fruit blended together, like this like healthy thing for our body. It's like a smoothie in a styrofoam cup or <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, like this like candy, like this thing that's like the short term, like a uh, sugar rush that will make us happy and then give us a headache. It's like, as we're growing up, all of these things that we're pushing through, like these challenges, like at the end, there's usually this reward of like stuff or excess or like, some sort of weird guilty pleasure, which is all wrapped in with excess and shame. And so it takes us so long to, I think, get kind of like deprogrammed from that or to like work our ways through that and be like, what do I need to survive? What do I need to make myself happy? Do like, what are the things that I find pleasurable? And which of those are actually, when I zoom out and look at a longer lens, hurting me? Are those, yes, maybe in the short term, they make me happy, but in the long term, they'll really be hurting me. And it's so hard to look outside of that present moment because we want to stay present. Like, I think that's like so important, but then also we need to constantly be present and looking into the future at the same time. And, and that's difficult. And I think it becomes increasingly difficult when we're being like, you know, just like bombarded with advertisement and so much of that just seeps into our psyche like we're like do I really want that who told me to want that why do I want this who am I and what do I want and like how can we like really really dig into that and then it doesn't maybe have to be that like echo chamber in your head how can it be like more open conversations with your friends and people that you trust and your loved ones of like what are the things that really make me happy and what are these like weird rituals that we just keep doing like on our birthdays or like is this really making us happy or we've just gotten into these strange habits and and then it's like, oh, well, it's nostalgic. It's like, well, actually, we could all, instead of, like, going out together and getting hammered, like, we could all, like, 
go somewhere and build something together. Like we could like go and volunteer somewhere or we could like make a collaborative art project together. And sometimes we just get kind of so stuck in these ways of being which have just been fed to us that it's so hard to snap out of that. And I feel like once we start, you know, it's like, when do we start really questioning ourselves? And once we do that, then we start coming to terms with like how our choices are affecting our future selves or future generations or our uh, potential children and and the people around us and our family. and And some of these choices are more direct. Like we're like, okay, like we know smoking is bad and we know that smoking will like really directly affect our own bodies, smoking cigarettes, our own bodies. And, and then we know that secondhand smoke kills and thousands and thousands of people die every year from that. And then, hmm, and then maybe we look further and we realize that the little plastic cigarette butts are the most littered item on planet earth and are suffocating our planet. And like, and then, but it becomes, that one's really hard. It, it would be really, it's hard to stop because it's physically addictive. And that's been fed to us by the tobacco industry. And the tobacco industry is evil. And they target LGBT youth two times more than any other demographic. And especially trans folks who are going through hormonal changes, um, the chemicals um, in tobacco can be really detrimental to their health. And so it becomes a super intersectional issue, but it's just something that's like, like fed to us still at a young age through advertising. So that's like one example, but it becomes a really pervasive example. And so, yeah, like reorienting how we find pleasure and joy in healthy ways and, and like really considering how how sexuality is viewed and taught at a young age and how that can affect people for the rest of their lives and how our choices we make today can affect the planet, you know, for the entire rest of this epoch. Growing up in American society, we just get, yeah. the messaging that we get is that, you know, we have dominion over uh, our land, our property, the, the earth, as it were. Yeah. And so how do we subvert that messaging so that we don't just tr thus treat it as if it is something that we can dispose of? I think I'm, I'm continuing to learn about that. Since moving to Minneapolis, I've had a lot more contact with Native communities um, and the Dakota and Ojibwe people here. Um, but not as much as I would like, and I think that's one one way to learn. I go to the um, medicine garden on the St. Paul campus of the University of Minnesota to just spend time to think, and um, the people who run the garden call it the only decolonized space uh, on on the campus, and and it's this medicine garden of. Uh, yeah, medicinal plants and, and native plants to the region. And it's it's so wild looking. Like there's there's not any like rose or like like really delineated parts of the space. Um, 
the plants are really allowed to do their own thing. And there's this project called Backyard Phenology who hosts talking circles there on different topics um, every uh, other Thursday, I believe. And so, I mean, you know, finding spaces where there are many voices together and especially if there is a circle involved like if you're all together in a circle uh i was recently at an artist talk by shango dare who um is also associated with the university of minnesota and is an artist in residence there for the next two years and she invited us into a, a black queer feminist space and uh, you know, we were all in a circle and said, like, uh, like, are you willing to be here in this space with me? And grew up in the South and um, and had a preacher as uh, had many preachers in her family and gave this incredible sermon about how God is hospitality and how opening up our homes and our hearts and our arms to others is so important and gave us this something to chew on in relation to inclusive diversity versus transformative diversity and she's like well inclusive diversity is like what's already happened like you all have invited me to to be an artist in residence and so it's like you've included me now there's a, a black queer feminist walking around the halls you can check off that box but transformative diversity in the way she was talking about it is like, I come into the space and n n now the path, I'm, I'm carving out a path for this to be more possible mm -hmm. for in the future. And there are people reaching out to collaborate with me and I, cre I create collaborative relationships with you all. And we create a new space here. We change the way that the space currently is. We 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 alter the institution and the system in some small way that could lead to a really big paradigm shift and so i don't know i get a lot of inspiration from artist talks i try to go out to artist talks but so often they are like you're just sitting in rows and somebody's talking at you and the q and a's can be a little bit uh can be like people trying to prove how much they know instead of actually being in conversation. So I always just really appreciate when there's a circle because then there can, it seems like more equal, that everyone has this more equal opportunity to talk. Um, but yeah, I think it has to be like, we have to push ourselves outside of our comfort zones. And that's like a lot of what I do in Minnesota is like asking people to dance. Like that pushes people outside of their comfort zones. Asking people to sing along, that pushes people outside. And, and yeah, I don't know. I just want to continue learning. I want to continue listening. How do you approach collaboration as an eco-pop star? And can you tell us about your relationship with Demibod? Yes. Well, I've been talking so much about collaborating with forces of nature, but I do have a fellow human collaborator, Demibod, who is body-like, mindful, bass-heavy. And <laughs> I met them because they had built this um, 
analog bass synthesizer from scratch. They're amazing at just like building all of their own stuff. And they were out in the woods, uh, like on West River Parkway by the river. And they were messing around with different frequencies, trying to create a, a harmony amongst these birds and like trying to like attract different birds with these different analog synth sounds. And uh, and it attracted me because <laughs> I'm, I'm a little singing birdie. And, <laughs> and so I was singing in the forest and they were like messing around with their homemade instrument and we just gravitated towards each other. And this was only a couple months after I had moved to Minneapolis like I mentioned, I was in a long distance relationship with the Mississippi and it was just like got to be too much. And so I was like, I need to move here and be by my mainstream, my main. And and then I'm in the woods and here I meet this fellow ecosexual, this fellow col collaborative, creative being. And we decide that you know, all of these like little ditties and refrains and healing meditative songs that I'm singing for myself, like hmm, these could be crafted into something for a wider audience that could be crafted into something with some really intense bass notes that get people dancing. We immediately got really excited about that and then started playing around together. And so um, Demibod, produced and we co-created froth forth the first single which you'll hear today yeah and um yeah they're just a super talented musician but also just have a really unique perspective and like i mentioned love to like build everything themselves so super diy um they have built us a little trailer home to live in. So we're living semi off the grid and in this uh, really small uh, trailer home, which eventually we'll be able to take on the road for a tour and live in. And so, yeah, they just built it completely from scratch, all out of recycled materials and scraps that were found around. They tend to be a bit of a scavenger and so definitely an inspiring musical collaborator, but also just life collaborator, somebody who's on the same page in this way that feels really good. And so we have a lot of songs simmering up. We have uh, an even more poppy hit, Ozone, which will come out at some point. Uh, we have a more like loopy, uh, a more acapella song, Bird in the Sand. And our current favorite, which we haven't done a demo of, but it'll be the next on our list when we're recording, is called Me and Universe. So, yeah, so just with, within the next couple of months, um, I'm sure that you all will start to hear more music coming from Echo Echo and Demibod, a collaborative dynamic duo. And, um, and as I mentioned, global warmups will start to pop up on YouTube. Um, so as of right now, we are on SoundCloud. And so that's how you all can find the first 
single and then keep up as new music starts to roll out. So we're soundcloud.com slash Eka hyphen echo. And if anyone's wondering, the spelling of Eka Echo is E-C-C-A-E-C-H-O, two words, Eka Echo. Yeah. And then that's also our, our Instagram handle is just Eka Echo. And that was recently launched, you know, it was like, oh, that complicated relationship with the internet, but just decided to go for it because, you know, we want to be able to speak to more followers and throughout videos um, and, and photos and, um, yeah, just share our love for the earth with fellow earthlings. All right, y'all heard the Instagram account, Echo Echo, follow it now. Follow it on Friday, follow it forever. Um, <laughs> What are you tired of hearing? I'm tired of hearing only you can pull that off or only, oh, you can do that, but I could never do that. And I just want to encourage everyone out there. You can do it and you don't have to do it 100% of the time. You can do it, though, whatever that thing is. People are always saying, oh, I wish I was a this. Uh, I'll, one day I'll be a vegan. Or uh, I, I wish that I could mm, find clothes at thrift stores instead of buying new clothes. Or, oh, I wish I could have, uh, I could go on more hikes and have a better relationship with the planet. And I'm here to say, you can do it. Whatever, whatever that thing is, like maybe you're looking at me and saying like, oh, I can't commit my entire life to that. Well, I'm out here committing my entire life to it because that's just what I'm passionate about. But you can find ways to integrate it into your everyday life and you can be a sometimes vegan or you can be a casual thrift shopper. All these things where you're seeing yourself and you're like, ah, oh, this is the ideal version of myself. But if I can't completely do that ideal version, then, eh, you know, why, why even try? Go for it. Just go for it. And you don't have to, you don't have to make it to that 100% mark. Just, just aim to be your best self in, in every way, but also be gentle with yourself and don't beat yourself up along the way because that's not going to help anyone out. Is there anything else you want to tell listeners? Hmm. I love you. <laughs> All right. That's good. Uh, are, you, are you currently taking in any art that's uh, moving you or inspiring you to, like, go, through, go forth in your day with a little extra encouragement? I recently really got into this, I guess, Sundance TV series, but it's through YouTube with Isabella Rossellini. There's Green Porno seduce me and mamas they're all these like super short videos that teach you a lot about different animals like reproductive habits it's super ecosexual in a really humorous way but like more scientific way so i'm learning so much from that hmm. and hmm, i'm always listening to grimes she just has my heart <laughs> she's a huge inspiration Grimes has come to town at least 
a couple of times, right? Mm. Maybe I've not never, since you've been here. Yeah, I've never seen her here, but I saw her when I was in New York a couple of years ago, and it was mind-blowing. And then I saw her at FYF in LA, and it was incredible. Uh, and her dancers are amazing, mm -hmm. and I know they choreograph most of that themselves, so like mm -hmm. a real collaborative team going on there. And she's just like a badass doing her own thing and like, being like a weirdo feminist pop star and so she's one of my biggest inspirations when your pop star rises and uh you know this this music gets out to the masses and you become more popular as a singer and uh your music grows are, are you worried about the tabloids alleging or falsely fabricating that you're literally having sex with plants <laughs> I'm a little bit worried about that. <laughs> I'll just send them an episode of the green porno and, <laughs> and be, they'll think that they got this major leak, but then they'll really just like learn something about how dolphins uh, <laughs> reproduce and they'll nice. be like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. That's great. Well, um, Echo, Echo. Uh, Thank you so much. For allowing us into your your space and uh, it was a pleasure talking with you and we're really grateful. Thank you Thank so you. much. Gratitude to both of you. Thank you, Eka. It was a pleasure. Now for any artists out there, uh, we're always wondering, what is your weapon of choice? And for those listening, what art are you taking in that's recharging you? You can email your answers to those questions to weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. That's weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. Yeah. Um, Speaking of art we're taking in, we've got a pretty jam-packed weekend coming up. What we got? We got mm -hmm. Thursday. We have Kamazi Washington in Minneapolis. Encourage everybody to go to that if you're in Minneapolis. And I'm sure he's around the Midwest or wherever. Um, Friday, um, this awesome art exhibit called The Black of the Berry has been at Public Functionary in Northeast Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. That's been going mm -hmm. strong. And the artist featured is Bobby Rogers. He'll be doing a talk this Friday at Public Functionary at 7 o'clock. We're going to be there, too. I see Andrew damn near every day this week because <laughs> on Saturday as well, uh, one of my favorite groups and uh, Ebay, a lot of you know who Ebay is. They're in town as well in Minneapolis. So we got a jam-packed weekend. We hope to see some of you out there. Um, if you see us, say what's up. Don't be a stranger. And Hey, everybody. Today is Election Day in a lot of different cities across America. Um, here in the Twin Cities, we get to try out some ranked choice voting. Second second year we're doing it. I'm pretty stoked about that. Yeah, I'm wondering if any artists are listening or know anyone. Have they done anything um, with their art having to do with local races or Election Day? We'd love to hear about that, so please email us. Our featured song this week is from Eka Echo. It is their first single, uh, Eka Echo, uh, produced by her collaborator Demibod. It is called Froth Forth. It is an awesome earth pop jam for your ears. Bam, let's do it.
to take the earth as your lover. Put your lips to the kitchen drain and sing the water a tender refrain. The chemical runoff is getting to my head. I'm seeing bubbles. I'm